And I heard the Lord say, I'm getting ready to pass by this body. Not pass you by. He's getting ready to come by. And then in the rest of that passage, it said, a very powerful wind went before the Lord, digging into the mountain and causing landslides. And then I heard the Lord said, but I'm not in the wind. You can only hear me in this season in the whisper. Then it goes on to say, but the Lord was, after the windstorm, there was an earthquake. But the Lord said, he was not in the earthquake. And after the fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a soft whisper. So when the Lord issues an invitation and says, come to the mountain and stand before the Lord, I'm getting ready to pass by, you have to know where to go see him. You have to know where to go incline your ear to hear him. So let me bring that into what I believe where we are right now. If you're looking for God in the fire right now, not really there yet. Sometimes we don't feel like we find the Lord because we're not looking in the right season where he is at the right moment. And so what we have to understand as a prophetic people who all carry the Holy Spirit, we have to understand and be able to interpret the seasons and the times and what God is doing and when he's doing it. And I believe he's calling this body into a season where it's time to incline the ear and find him in the whisper, not the wind. You guys receive that? So, Father, we're ready for you to pass by. We're assembled at the mountain, and we say, come by heart of the Father. We thank you that, Lord, there are times when this church has seen you in the earthquake, and the landslide was magnificent as we saw the displays of your power. We thank you that there were times when you were in the fire, and you still will yet be again. But there are also times when you've been in the wind, and the wind of the Spirit's blowing. But Lord, we understand that there's a season we're coming into now where we're finding you and hearing you in the whisper. It's the whisper where we're inclining. It's the whisper of John who rested his head upon your breast, who was close enough to your mouth that you could whisper into his ear. So Lord, we recognize that you're calling us closer into this season in the body, that you're calling us to abide, that this is a Mary anointing where we come and we break open. Yes. The alabaster boxes. Lord, we thank you that you're turning this body and this church into a Bethany. We declare that you will be, that we will be a Bethany, a house of Marys who break open the boxes of our hearts. We listen for you as our ears are and our heads are laid upon your breast, close enough to your mouth for you to whisper the things in your heart into this body. We thank you that in the future, You'll come again in the fire, but right now you're calling us close, close enough for the whisper. And so, Lord, we say that as a body on Wednesday night here, that we're coming close enough to hear in the whisper, Father. And we're saying, come and whisper. We desire to meet with you 
you desire to meet with us, and we desire to come close, and may you find a Bethany here in this house. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you receive that? All right, so I want to do one more thing. The Lord, um, I'm going to open up, this is a perfect segue into, so tonight we're going to start dealing with how to resolve conflict in the kingdom way. And as I was thinking through this, the Lord really, again, kind of whispered into my ear. I, we was part of a meeting last night, and in that meeting, I started to see a picture of something that I believe the Lord was showing prophetically, and I think it relates to really what we're teaching and the Bible says, how many of you know that we are not caught unaware of the strategies of the enemy? The people of God are never to be caught unaware. Do you understand that as long as we contain Holy Spirit in us, we have the mind of Christ, we know everything He knows, all we have to do is listen in the whisper, or in the wind, or in the fire, or wherever He is at the moment. But one of the most powerful kingdom principles, and to understand and set the framework, what we really have to come back to in this body, and really in every church gathering or ecclesia gathering in the world, is really we have to understand and cooperate with the Holy Spirit where we have substituted church culture and called it kingdom culture. And I, I'm not saying that as one who's angry at the church. I love the ecclesia. I love it with all my heart. But we also have to understand that in the process of that, we are called into kingdom. The Bible says, Jesus said, it was the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You're beautiful because the kingdom is in you. You take that kingdom with you everywhere you go. You, you are the most brilliant plan of God in that inside of you. He put all of his reign and his rule in you. And in as much as we begin to manifest and live by kingdom principles, processes, and protocols, every time we execute one of those, we manifest the kingdom of God. So understand that obedience is powerful in and of itself. It is essentially its own reward but understand what you're doing. That when you obey what Scripture says is a principle, a process, or a protocol, your, obe your obedience brings into manifestation the kingdom of God. So that understanding here on earth, so that understanding that when the people of God come together and are assembled as an ecclesia and they begin to walk out the principles of that kingdom, they become a manifestation of the kingdom that displaces every other inferior kingdom. So it's not that um, we have to contrive it or work it up. It's that you are a living witness and a manifestation and you take the kingdom everywhere you go and when you obey its principles, that kingdom manifests and begins to displace all other worldly, demonically inspired kingdoms. You see glimpses of it all throughout Scripture. But here's what we have to understand. That we are not caught unaware of the devil's devices. And I don't want to spend any time at all giving him any attention because he doesn't deserve any of it. But what we also have to understand is this. that There is no amount of prayer 
There's no amount of fasting. There's no amount of spiritual warfare prayer meetings or anything that will provide an abs- a, 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 a substitute or an accurate substitute for what only putting on love can do. If I don't put on love, I can't pray as a substitute for that. I can only get what putting on love does. Am I making sense or are you already feeling like I'm talking heresy tonight? So let me read a passage of Scripture for you that kind of illustrates this point, and then we're going to jump into it, and it really does relate well. So Colossians 3 says that, and above all these is point number four on page two if you don't have a Bible. But, and above all these, the ESV says, put on love which binds everything together in perfect peace or harmony. So when I read Colossians, what I have to understand is the way that I get to perfect harmony is by putting on love. So I can pray for perfect peace, like I can pray for harmony, and I can do all those things, but if I fail to manifest the Scripture, the Word of God, and if I fail to produce the corresponding behavior, then I'm not really going to get the corresponding result. So putting on love is a powerful thing in that when I do it, it releases us into or me into a perfect harmony. In the context of Colossians, it says that as the body, when we put on love, that is the prerequisite to bringing the body into oneness. We're not after unity, really. We're after the oneness of God. We're, af- we're, 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 we're out to come together because we can unify around false doctrine. Right? But what I can't do is come into oneness outside of love. And so what, the Lord, what Paul is showing the, the Colossian church here is, is that the way to come into oneness is to put on love just like it's a garment. And then he says, let the word, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. So look at what he's saying. He's connecting putting on love to the rule of God. So we're talking about kingdom level principles here. We're talking about how that God's rule really is in, 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 in this context established through me putting on love or his rule manifests as I put on love you guys with me and then he goes on to say to in to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful and then he says let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing hymns psalms and spiritual songs now you know that word spiritual songs is something only believers can do. And one translation of it literally says to sing in the breath of God. That to sing spiritual songs means we sing it by the unction of the Holy Spirit in such a way that we can only sing spiritual songs because we're singing out of that unction, out of that empowerment of the Spirit. Just like love is a supernatural prerogative and agency of God that I only have potential to access when I'm a true, authentic believer. Does that make sense? 
So going forward, understanding that and whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So let me, let me wrap this up, and this is a perfect bridge into what we're talking about tonight. That if we want the peace and the harmony and oneness that Colossians 3 talks about, we have to literally put on in our understanding, it's like we're putting on like a garment, a covering of love. And that really fits well with love covers a multitude of sins. So when we put love on a person, we're covering them in and with love. So here's what I want to say. That what, we, what I've seen in the last 30 years, many situations, is if I were the enemy and I were a master strategist, one of the primary things that I would do inside of a body is I would immediately work to make that body passive. And one of the things that I would do, I'd put them to sleep. And one of the things that I would do as your enemy is I would engineer into the DNA of that body an unwillingness to challenge or confront, and I would put a willingness in you to tolerate. And then in that, what I would do is, if I made everyone afraid of challenging or confrontation or all of these things where we're simply willing to come face to face and talk about issues instead of those awkward Thanksgivings where you're where you're acting like you're a great big family, but you all really hate each other. Like, you know, that kind of stuff where it's Thanksgiving, so all the hate. But, but we're just kind of ignoring the reality that we don't really like each other, but it's Thanksgiving, right? But what we have to understand, and I know that's, that's an exaggeration, so don't get mad at me. But um, the thing is, is understanding that if I were trying to divide and keep you out of harmony or oneness, I would create a scenario where no one really liked to talk about issues and confront because, as Barry so eloquently said in a conversation earlier, where the lack of communication breeds darkness. And so understanding that, if I can get you into not obeying the protocol of Scripture... And we're going to read it in Matthew 18 here in a moment. And I can get you out of this mindset that it's better just to ignore and tolerate than it is to be willing to speak the truth in love. That I've won a really serious battle because behind the scenes, while we're all ignoring and avoiding, I can build some of the greatest structures to put people into captivity within. I can, in my my ability to get everyone to avoid and not put on love, I can create an environment where out of that, I can begin to release a spirit of gossip where people can talk about one another, but we're never really owning it. So there's a lot of chatter going on behind the scenes. But in the process of that, because we're, no, we're not really talking about it, the enemy is literally becoming the accuser of the brethren and is using us to do it. And I'm not trying to go all negative. What I'm trying to say is, is that we're not caught unaware of the devil's devices. And most often, Paul says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood because it looks like we do. 
Because often our greatest wrestles come through other people who are in agreement with the devil. Now, I'm not saying that to be mean. I'm saying that where there is an absence of the love of God in my life, there is the presence of something else. And so what we do is we understand that in the kingdom, and because we have the kingdom in us, all of us have the capacity to manifest a supernatural, spirit-inspired, in-the-breath-of-God kind of love that stops the enemy in his tracks. So when we get together and we recognize on some level, how many of you would say in the room tonight that you've undergone legitimate spiritual warfare in your life? We all have. I mean, if you're breathing, hell has an assignment against you that it's been working all of your life. Right? But what we have to understand is, is that you and I have the ability to live inside of a kingdom that is ruled by a king and when we live by his principles, processes, and protocols, the devil cannot operate. There's no place for him to work. So what we're after is, again, we're learning the art of confrontation, not as a mean to be aggressive and to victimize people through anger and all that kind of stuff. We're learning how not to be passive believers that through our passivity we are actually posturing ourselves against God. Now I want you to really think about it. I'm not trying to be heavy and mean. I'm trying to tell you that when I don't follow a protocol that God gives me in the Word, I can't, I can't manifest His righteous purpose that comes when I obey Scripture, right? And so what happens is when I follow a procedure, like for instance, putting on love, I automatically produce and manifest the kingdom of God because I'm walking in the principle and I'm walking under the law of that king. You with me? All right, so now, how does this relate to what we're talking about tonight? So what I've got to understand is, and what we all really need to kind of consider this evening, is that you and I have the most magnificent thing in that the Lord has manifested who he is, his rule and his reign in our hearts so that when we come together as an ecclesia, the greatest source or the greatest basis for my growth and the revelation of God that's maturing in my life comes through how I rub up against the people that I'm in the ecclesia with. So understanding that when I learn to put on love and how many scriptures in the Bible actually talk about the love of God, considering others better than yourself, uh, loving with a, with a pure heart, loving sincerely without hypocrisy, all these scriptures that talk about how to come together and the goal of that is to bring us into oneness because even heathens can, can unify around anything. But, but the only thing that can produce oneness is the kingdom of God and obeying that kingdom. And when the body comes into oneness, the body is no longer passive. So what we're after is we're after a kingdom or a community of, of people, of, uh, of Christ followers, of disciples who, de who decide to put on love. And so if, if there's a lot that I'm going to say tonight, but if you walk away with this with a greater purpose and a determination in your heart to really put on love toward the people that you're sitting next to, Jesus gets a win here.
And the problem is that I can't, hell, so let me just say it this way, hell cannot use me as a pawn when I'm walking in love. And so when I look at Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood because oftentimes the wrestle is coming through flesh and blood, but it doesn't originate through flesh and blood. But when I walk in love, I cannot be used by the enemy through my soul or my damage because, because just like perfect love casts out all fear, any work of the enemy cannot occupy the same space that love does. The good news, man, I know there's a lot of good about the news, but I'm going to tell you the best part about the news is it's not complicated. We just have to love. That's it. All right. So let me, let me run you through a couple things. So we're going to talk about conflict, and then I'm going to tell you why I went that direction. So you can understand conflict really in a lot of ways as the absence of love in a situation. Because really, when we've put on love, we have the basis for resolving any conflict that would arise. There is no conflict where love doesn't apply and love really isn't a part of the solution. And so what we have to do in order to understand how to walk through conflict is we have to really understand two big things. One, not confronting, not challenging. Toleration is really about recognizing something's not right and I leave it unchallenged, right? So understanding that love does not tell me not to confront, it just tells me how to, right? So toleration really isn't in the language of Scripture, and patience isn't a synonym of toleration, right? So understanding that when I put on love, and the other person, especially if it's a brother, sister in Christ, if they put on love, we automatically have resolution, because all it really takes is, if I consider you better than myself, as Scripture says, I'll defer to you to the point where I'm willing to resolve any conflict. Is that simple? All right, let's pray. We're good. So having said that, what is conflict? It's an energy force that's generated in people when they experience either a real or an imagined unmet need. The biggest source of conflict in our life is when a need isn't getting met and a clash happens because, because of it. That's one way. That's one of the most common ways. The second thing is a situation where there's a perceived negative difference and that perceived difference results in what I like to call negative emotional energy. It's that, it's that negative emotion that gets stirred up when you feel like you've been wronged or you've been hurt. And what ends up happening is if you're not careful, you get emotionally hijacked and it just kind of takes over. And the next thing you know, you're saying things you don't want to say. And then you can't take it back because your emotions have hijacked your, your sense of reason, right? And then thirdly is either a clash, better way to say it is it's a clash of needs, beliefs, values, behaviors, or interests. So in 1.3, um, we could really say that there's about eight basic um, causes of conflict. The first is resources. It's caused by a lack of resources. 
It's when one country has oil that I want and it creates conflict. Or it's when one country or one place over here has gold that I want or some other resource that's in short supply, water, food. A lot of the third world countries are controlled because of a lack of resources and dictators rise up to control those resources and it creates conflict. Um, even in your own home, in those one bathroom scenarios, we're fighting over who gets bathroom time and hair dryer time, right? That's a sense, a, a conflict. Um, conflicts can also, a lack of resources can also be when you're not filling the love bank of your spouse, there's a lack of resources and it creates conflict. The next is a, con a confl conflicting style. So this is where temperaments come in. You've got, you've got two different temperaments on the opposite sides of the scale. One is more of an emotional relator, like Raul, really in touch with who he is emotionally. <laughs> and on the other side, you've got a Dave Vespa, who is militant, and let's get it done, and let's think about, emo let's feel and pet puppies later, right? <laughs> Because we got a job to do. So when you take a real super outward emotional person, and then you take a person, it's not that he's not emotional, it's just that he's not driven. That's not on the top of who he is, and he's all about getting things done and productive. If the two of these don't understand the differences in their temperaments, there's an immediate conflict because each of them, if they don't watch it, wants the other person to be like them. And because of that, it creates conflict. So the beauty in the kingdom is you don't need to worry about what people aren't. You need to celebrate them for who they are. Right? And everybody, in some sense, while we're growing and we're maturing, we also get the right to not necessarily have to change my temperament in order to accommodate yours, but... I will say this, that understanding temperaments will raise your emotional intelligence level astronomically high because you'll know the right way to get along with everybody. I can tell you the first time I sit down with you, the first thing I'm assessing and measuring you on is what temperament are you? And I know that when I'm talking to Barry Nichols, that if I draw him into an argument, he wants to be right. Because that's his temperament. That's what a melancholy temperament does. And so understanding that, here's the problem with a person like Barry Nichols. He usually is. Except when it comes to his wife. Except when it comes to his wife. So the thing you understand about the, his type of temperament is they value being right. And that's not an arrogance pride thing. They value, they put lots of value in knowing what you're talking about. And not shooting from the hip. So I know that generally the melancholies that I'm in relationship aren't going to shoot from the hip. They're actually going to have put the time in and when they say something, I may or might not agree with it. But whatever they say, they put the time and the energy into knowing what they're talking about and having a good reason why they believe that. That's a win. But I also know that um, melancholies love the details. And when I talk to melancholies, I'm like, there's a point. Lead me to that, like quickly. Like, let's bypass all the other detail, get me right to the point. And so the, the detail and the melancholy can like 
like make me want to stab myself sometimes because I'm like I'm work I'm work I'm trying to get I'm trying to get the point help me now not all of them are like that but what I'm saying is understanding the temperaments will will and learning how to flow and work with the temperaments of people then you start to understand that some of the conflicts that I get involved in or the clashes with personalities are simply because I'm not understanding another person's temperament. And when I do, I don't have to mistrust them because they're not like me. All right? Next up is conflicting perceptions. Now this, yes, sir. Hey, this is my show. What are you doing? No, I'm kidding. I'm totally joking, man. All right. Speak into my mic. No, I'm, I think it's important. We have a casual word melancholy that we use. All right. As opposed to the melancholy temperament. Yeah. And you might want to, like. Okay, so we're not saying you're depressed and melancholy and you need to play sad songs on the piano. What we're talking about is there are four, and this is just one of many different types of way to classify it, but people generally fit into a baseline where you'll default to certain things. And um, that's what we're talking about. So melancholy in the temperament arena is really about their detail-oriented piece. They're very deep thinkers. You know, they process through that. So understanding where a person like my friend Kim Weir here, she's a sanguine. She's like, um, she'll bounce around the party. She's talking to everybody. Everybody's her friend. Like, they just love Kim Weir because she's just this real social. And that's not a... I'm gonna tell you right now I'm you I'm really not like a lot of people think I'm real sociable and I'm an extrovert I'm really not I'm totally an introvert and it wears me out to talk to people I'm just saying that right now and so what I do when in situations like this I'm looking for the sanguine so I can go hang out with them because I don't want to carry the conversation I just want to contribute that's all I want to do so understanding that is understanding that there is usually a strategy in my understanding and my emotional intelligence that when I'm tired and don't want to be the life of the party, which is very rarely ever, I go hang out with the, melan or the sanguines and I go let them do all the work. <laughs> all right, so um, conflicting perceptions. This is about the filter that you live in that many of us don't aware, that we're not aware that we have. So understand that one of the greatest filters in our life is our own damage that we carry in our soul. So understand that to whatever degree, and it's going to be a hard one to swallow, and I don't mean this to be mean to you, but understand at whatever level you are living with emotional damage, there is always delusion that's attached to that. So to whatever degree you are embracing and living out of damage, you are delusional. So understand, and what that means is delusion is simply living in a, an illusion, and I'm living in a reality that's not quite true, but it's shaped by my damage. And so it's hard for me to relate to people and have healthy relationships because I'm either insecure, there's all these things pushing on behind my emotions, and to that degree, I'm believing something about myself or other people or life in general, and my delusion shapes what I believe. So understand that many conflicts arise out of a pure perception, or really, the better way to say it, a misperception. Next one is conflicting goals. When I have a goal that conflicts with yours, and I really 
and, and, and I can't understand why you don't understand that my goal is better and you should just submit to my goal. I mean, come on, because I wouldn't want anything that's dumb. Therefore, because I want it, it's got to be the right thing, right? Just like circular reasoning. Of course what I believe is right, because I wouldn't believe anything that's not. Therefore, what I believe must be right. Amen. Right? So anyway, um, we have conflicting goals. I want something different than you want, and I'm willing to fight you to get it. Conflicting pressure, and this is a big one. How many of you ever felt the squeeze and it, and, it, and it creates conflict because you're not dealing with pressure well? The next one is conflicting roles. If there's confusion, and we talk about this a lot in leadership, the stronger leader in the room isn't always the person with the position. The strongest leader in the room is the strongest leader in the room. And so what we have to understand is that many times that can put people into conflict when we don't understand and haven't properly defined roles or when people are trying to lead through a role but don't have real leadership. That puts people in conflict because the title is why I want to be a prophet, I want to be an apostle, I want to be all this kind of stuff. Well, slap whatever title you want on yourself, but if you don't have the goods, you don't have the goods, right? Like I can declare to you right now why I'm such an amazing track runner. I feel like you got that, so I'm moving on. So um, then there's conflicting values. You'll see this a lot between believers and non-believers. We live by, I, listen, I'll give you a perfect example. I was working with a man, and his wife worked in a different department. This is years and years ago. And when, he would, when she would call on the phone, he would call her the most awful name I, cannot, I can't even get close to it because it would just be so inappropriate to say it. And they would laugh about it because that was his pet name. I mean, it was awful. And I, 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 I got so irritated. And then I'm like, I cannot believe you call your wife that. He's like, oh, we're just joking or whatever else. And I said, well, you know, Proverbs has a, there's a proverb. You ever, you, you know, believe in the Bible? Yeah, what well, Proverbs says, like a madman flinging arrows is the one who says, I was just joking. And so, uh, you, you joking, how do you think that wife, your wife really feels about you demeaning her like that? And because you're willing to call her something like that, you're really showing what your view of women really is. He got so mad at me, and, and, and of course, not having hardly any emotional intelligence at, at 20-something, whenever that was, I said, well, I'm sorry, I just live by a different set of values than you do. <laughs> well, what did that do? That made me come off as more superior to him, even though I was, but say that. No, I'm totally kidding. And it really showed me my own arrogance and my own pride and my own heart. But there was a clash of values because there is no conceivable scenario where I would ever agree with that kind of behavior, ever. And so that put me at odds with him because I will not be in fellowship with a person who demeans women like that or anybody like that, even if it's in jest. So that right there puts my value at odds with his value, and that is not something I will tolerate. 
All right, and then lastly, policies. Uh, when the personal, social, or organizational rules change and the change isn't communicated or agreed upon. Let me stop here for one second and let me tell you where this is really going to hit you at home. It's when in my own life I go through an evolution in my person where, where my thinking has changed on something, I've evolved. Maybe I've, uh, what didn't kill me actually did make me stronger, and I've got a new attitude, and I'm working some Patti LaBelle in the 80s, and I'm doing all this kind of stuff, and meanwhile, I'm doing me for a change, right? And what happens is, in that mindset, I've evolved, but all the people around me didn't get to know the new rules I'm living by. And so now I'm living by a new rule set. I'm living by some new belief systems. And meanwhile, I can't understand why everybody's mad at me, even though I didn't tell them my rule set change. I didn't tell them that I got an upgrade in the operating system. And you're, you really just need to catch up. I mean, and so that creates conflict. And so again, how many of you realize we're all going through evolutions every single time. And when we don't learn how to communicate those, especially to spouses and people that are close to us, they're wondering, well, how was I supposed to that know that? I'm not a mind reader, right? So that's what these types of conflicts start with. So let me, uh, 1.4, here's the thing you have to understand about conflict, that conflict is not if, it's when. And lots of times that conflict is unavoidable and ignoring them and hoping they'll go away never makes that happen. Like conflicts don't go away, they just manifest in other areas, or if they don't, they just keep growing and growing, and the momentum and energy behind conflict usually starts to have really dire repercussions in my life the more I try to avoid and ignore. Do you understand that as believers, part of why I think, now I'm going to just throw something really broad out here, but I wonder if we would have a lot better time sharing our faith if we would actually live out of Matthew 18 and learn how to, when a brother sins against us, actually go to the brother and learn how to talk about and confront what they did to sin, and then if my brother receives it, I've gained a brother, right? And so in Matthew 18, I wonder if we lived by that protocol when we could learn how to sit down and follow kingdom protocols, if that wouldn't have a direct correlation on my boldness to actually share my faith because I'm used to being face-to-face -face with people and I'm not afraid of rejection or confrontation. After all, why are we afraid to share our faith? Because we're afraid of confrontation. What if built within the protocols of the kingdom is the basis to help me get past my fear by learning how to love and relate to my brother and that gives me the impetus and the hubris to actually share my faith in the kingdom that's on the inside of me? What if because I want to avoid all the time, and when I get mad or upset, I run to an elder or a church leader to go do that for me. Every time I do that, what happens? I circumvent a process, and I'm robbing myself of an opportunity to grow in my ability to speak the truth in love. Somebody said to me today, the biggest, the biggest avoiders, the biggest people who um, avoid correction are the people that don't like it. The reason why we don't confront is because we don't like to be confronted. We would rather live in ignorance. We'd rather live in avoidance because we've got this safe little world we're creating for ourselves that's not really based in reality to the point we're not willing to confront or 
to bring something out into the open. Challenges, Cliff says. So uh, Matthew 18, let's roll through this really quick. And um, he says this in 15, if your brother, verse 15, sins, go and show him his fault when the two of you are alone. So understanding that the biblical protocol that exists between believers, if someone sins against me, it is on me to follow the protocol of going to that brother or that sister. When I circumvent that process, I don't get the corresponding manifestation of the kingdom in this area of my life or in this area of church life because I'm circumventing something that Jesus told me to go do. I'm simply not obeying scripture. Understand that disciples obey. And so in Matthew 18, we have to read the scripture and realize that my life has to come into conformity to what Jesus told me in Matthew 18. And then if I'm afraid of confrontation, then I have to really allow the love of God to cast out all fear because I need to be able to go to my brother because it's to my benefit and my brother's benefit or my sister's benefit. So understanding in doing that, when that confrontation happens, and it's not that we want the, the Disney ending every time, we won't get a Disney ending every time. But what you will get is the benefit of losing your fear and stepping outside of living in a delusion. The most oddest thing in the world is you're sitting at Christmas going, we are, are we really all sitting here acting like we love each other when we don't even talk to each other the whole rest of the year? Now, I know that's not everybody's life, but it's that proverbial elephant or hippopotamus or whatever your animal of choice is that's in the room, and we're all just like ignoring like nothing's happening. It's the oddest thing ever. I feel so awkward in situations like that. But anyway, he goes on to say, if you go to your brother and alone, if he listens to you, you've regained your brother. So why do we confront? The goal isn't because we like confronting and pounding people. That's never the goal. The goal is to regain what we lost in the relationship. The goal is to realize that the person at whatever level I'm having a dispute with is a son of God and an heir that I need in my life and that I need to regain them again and not let whatever the conflict is that came about in our lives separate us because this is someone that has something in him or her that I need that my conflict will prevent me, for, prevent me from obtaining or pouring into or receiving from their well. And I, I, I lack or won't get the benefit or the blessing of relationship with that person. You with me? So in there, he goes on to say, but if he doesn't listen, step two, the next level of protocol is we take one or two others with you. Now, here's what we do. And you'll have to understand that why we do this. So if one sins against you, let's do one of the most common. What do you think in this room is one of the most common sins that we will commit against one another? Don't think too deep. This one's super simple. Huh? Gossip. So when I know and become aware that you've gossiped about me, does the Bible say that I should go to you and confront you about your gossip? Now, again, confront. I want to redefine. I want to take back a cultural word that's been stolen, and I want to bring that back. So I want to come back and say that confront 
coming face to face with you. I'm coming to your face. Now realize I can't do Matthew 18 on Facebook, right? Can't do Matthew 18 on text messages, right? Because text messages are just that step above avoiding. I'm really not committing to it. I'm just kind of halfway getting there. And I feel very powerful because I'm on the other side of a phone, not near you. Right? Come on, somebody. So when I come into this situation, understand that gossip, when someone's gossiping about me, what I don't want to do is return the favor. Right? So understand that that if I go and I recognize that I have an ought against someone or someone has ought against me, as another passage says, if the first thing that I go do is start talking to other people that aren't involved, what I'm really doing, I'm going to help you out here. This is Emotional Intelligence 101. You ready? What I'm really doing is I'm afraid I feel weak and powerless and I need to go raise up a power base so that I can feel powerful enough to wage war against you. The reason why I go tell my friends and not you is because I don't feel powerful enough to actually go to you. But there is no believer in this room that isn't powerful enough to go to your brother under Matthew 18 and in the authority of Scripture to go to your brother. You don't need any other power than the authority of the word behind you that backs what you're doing. You just have to do that in love, right? Because, again, my, I, my goal isn't to beat you down. Oh, you did it this time, man. You really messed up this time, and now you're going to pay for it, right? I get, uh, scripture tells me I get to tell you of your sin, and brother, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and he's given me license to be his mediator. And so if that's the basis of why I'm going to the person, I'm in error and getting ready to commit an equally egregious sin, right? But if my goal is, uh-oh, something's going on in this brother's heart, he feels like he needs to gossip, let me go and find a way to be restored back to my brother. If my heart is postured toward wanting to be restored relationally with my brother, that's a whole different basis. Now I'm coming to my brother with a soft answer that could potentially turn away his wrath. Right? And so what ends up happening is I don't need to establish a power base. I don't need to, to draw people to my side so that I can feel powerful. I need to, as Scripture commands me, go and to make that right with the brother. Step two, if that doesn't happen, and many times it won't be. And you hear this all the time. Well, I'm not going to go talk to this person because it's not going to really do anything. Well, here's the problem in that. The outcome is never excuse not to do it. Your perceived idea of what the outcome is going to be does not excuse you from doing what the Scripture says to do. It's not strategically advantageous. Well, here's your problem. Love's not a strategy. Love is love. Everybody say that. Love's not a strategy. I don't love when it's strategically advantageous for me, right? So understanding that when, I, when that brother can't receive it or that sister can't receive it, then the next thing is to take two, which notice what's happening here, one or two, where I wouldn't do it right the first time and I would amass a power base to get behind me, there is a process where I can go and take two, one or two other mature believers. Leaders are really good here because they're solid. And I don't establish a power base. 
I bring mediators not that are going to side with me and bias toward my view. I bring them in to help mediate any kind of awkward or tension or conflict that we can't resolve alone. And sometimes that happens. The best thing you could ever do after you've gone to the point where you've tried to resolve it individually is find a non-biased mediator that'll help bridge the gap or the lack of communication or help disperse the negative emotional energy that's working against us to resolve our conflict. You with me? And so anyway, the next level, if that doesn't work, then Scripture goes on to say that if that doesn't, uh, does not listen, take one or two others so that at the testimony of two or three witnesses, every matter may be established. So they help facilitate communication and their witnesses to what was agreed upon during the conflict or the discussion. Right? And then lastly, if that doesn't work, then we, uh, if we refuse to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to the ecclesia, treat him like a Gentile or a tax collector. So understand something. The most loving thing you could do in the body is not allow people to not be unloving in a way that creates victims. The reason why if we go through all this process, first me individually, then me with other people, and then before the church or a leadership setting and how many of you have ever really seen that done where where a person's gone through a process and they won't repent and they won't change their mind and they literally have to be put out of the church we don't do that in church because that that really works against attractional church where our goal is to fill seats but not really build community and so what we end up having to do is that is in god's ecclesia you actually do have to produce corresponding behavior in order to participate in it. And if, you're, if your behavior doesn't line up with what the king says, you're put out of that community. Now, church culture, we don't do that. But in kingdom culture, we do because, again, we can't allow people to come in and bring us out of oneness. Now, yes, love is patient, but love is not tolerant. Am I making you guys think it's Wednesday night? I know so. So I know we're almost done here. Let me say this then, that if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to the church, treat him like a Gentile or a tax collector. What we're learning here that is that while there's truth that Jesus is asking us to walk in, there's beatitudes, which are processes and principles and protocols that we follow as believers. Understand this, that every time I circumvent one of those that I'm called to obey, I rob myself of the blessing that my obedience will bring forth. So understand the best thing that you could ever do, it's like this. Um, Cloud and Townsend wrote a book not too long ago. The title of the book was called Why People Change. Found out all these things. Here's all the stuff. Let me just, I'll, I'll beat you to the punch. You don't even have to read the book. Most of the dumb stuff that we're doing to try to get people to change doesn't work. But for some reason, we keep doing the same thing over and over again, thinking like that somehow this is the magic moment where I, even after I've tried it a hundred times, it's suddenly going to work this time. But they found out that really what largely causes a person to change is when that person is allowed to feel the pain of their bad decisions. So every time I step in and I circumvent a process that your bad behavior is creating, 
understand that the moment I intercept that and on some level don't allow that to complete the cycle, I am robbing that person of the ability to feel some pain that could be the impetus for their change. Now, I know that sounds tough, and I'm not saying that in a way that's unloving. I'm saying that this is why in addict families that there's two parts to addictions. When you've got an alcoholic person in your family or an addict, there's two parts. There's the person who's in the addiction, who's using everybody, and then there's the other people that are cooperating with it. And really, there are two sides of addict to every addiction, and it's the people that tolerate it. And why we do that is because we believe the apologies every time when we should really be believing the behavior. Right? That's not unloving. That's helping a person get to because I, I will continue my bad behavior as long as everyone around me tolerates it. Right? So I need passive partners so that I can get what I want and do what I want and you won't stop me or challenge me when I do it. And that's the ugliness behind addiction. All right, so the last thing I'll say this and we'll wrap this up next week is um, over on page three, I want to give you one simple conflict resolution technique. It's a real simple thing that's really just based out of Matthew 18. And in it, it simply says this, that first, when there's a conflict, I go to and I address it quickly. Understand that the moment conflict occurs, the clock starts ticking. And what that, click it, that, what that ticking is, we can see evidences of this clock in a lot of these different passages. If you're at the altar and you're getting ready to lay your gift at the altar and you know your brother has ought against you, don't give it. That's literally what scripture says. Stop right there and go and make it right or attempt to make it right with your brother. So let me ask you a question. Knowing that in your heart you're offended and you're idolizing someone and in your heart you are unwilling to forgive them. I can't tell you in how many situations where I sit with people, no, I'm not ready to forgive right now. And yet I'll see them on Sunday morning raising their hands and lost in worship. Now let me ask you a question. Does God receive that? Is my worship in vain if I'm bowing down to, because essentially what I'm really saying, Lord, is you are really only worthy of an inferior act of worship because the real God is the idol that I've made through my offense, and that's really what I'm giving my heart to. Everybody say forgiveness is not optional. It's a commandment. And so secondly, what I want to do is realize that while the clock is ticking, I need to not let the sun go down on my wrath. I need to make this right as quick as possible because the longer it stays active in my heart, it starts to take root in my heart. So I have to get this out of my heart. So I can tell you right now, because life brings us challenges where we are, get our emotions hurt, we feel betrayed, we get, you know, somebody says something wrong to us, whatever that is, I've learned in my heart to immediately go to forgiveness right away. Now, I may not always feel that emotionally because sometimes it hurts. And I don't need to ignore my emotion. 
I need to embrace it. But I, I'm going to tell you, I don't know what you do, but here's what I do. I start speaking to my emotions, and I say, I understand that it hurt when that person hurt me, and I feel that. I'm not ignoring it. But you have to forgive. I purpose in my heart to forgive, and then I go into intercession for that person. You guys don't realize how many of you I've actually been really interceding for. No, I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. But what I learned to do is that that person who's wounded me is a son of God and is an inheritor and they love the same Jesus I do and how could I not love someone else that loves the same God I do and so in the process of that what I do in my heart is I begin to forgive immediately and I don't let that clock tick the next thing that I do is I understand that face-to-face is not optional it's essential that the moment that that happens I'm going to that person even before I go to a leader right because there's not a leadership clause that says I can go to the leader first or what we usually do in churches because we don't like to follow this kind of thing is we go tell a leader so they'll go do it for us and so again, leader, you're, if you do that, you're helping someone circumvent a scriptural commandment that you shouldn't be doing. Unless there is a place in there where there's really safe, uh, it's not safe to do that. Uh, obviously, we don't want to put each other in danger, but we don't want to bypass an opportunity to be reconciled to my brother by going to someone else and having them confront my brother right because what does that really do it makes the first person feel betrayed because you didn't come to them you had to go to somebody else right so I want to go quickly I want to go face to face I want to go one-on-one and then if I can't do it one-on-one I then I need to go get help and what the help you need to go get are solid mature people who love God and a lot of times those should be leaders right because again, you don't want to pull, you don't want to build a power base and go find all the people you know are going to agree with you or that you can polarize and spread the division to. You want to go find leaders who can be non-biased and who will execute a right interpretation of scripture to help you run into and to bring into a, a resolution the conflict. All right, so I'm going to close right here and the next week we're going to do two things if you got these notes i'm going to go through really five things or five styles they're under 2.3 if you want to look them over I, I can go through them a lot quicker but next week we're going to talk about different styles or responses to conflict now i want you to notice something one through five here is in the order that they should happen the goal of all conflict resolution is to collaborate to a solution, right? It's to sit down and converse and collaborate. And in, and in the business world, we're looking for the win-win. We want you to win. I want me to win. We, 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 we're looking for that place where we can collaborate. Look what number five is. Number five is avoidance. So understand that out of all these other four, all these other fours get someone a win at some level. Number five is the only conflict resolution technique that I can use that never has within it the ability to actually resolve the conflict. So understand that when I'm avoiding, what I'm really saying in my heart is I'm willing to live 
I'm willing to let this relationship go. I'm willing to lose in the process. And what I'm really saying is I'm just going to avoid you and the situation, and I'm okay with that. But how can we say that we are in a ministry of reconciliation if we're not really willing to be reconciled? All right, and then the last thing I want to point you to, because I probably won't get to it next week, is under part three, are how to deal with difficult people. These are the personality types you'll encounter and, and some techniques to give you into really understanding how to deal with some of those. So my favorite one on here, you got the sniper. They're taking stabs and shooting bullets and then ducking for cover. Those are the passive aggressives that kind of just throw that out there and then go duck. I was in a conversation not too long ago. Within the first 60 seconds, that person threw a passive-aggressive statement to me, disguised as a question. And I smiled, and they went on just talking for probably about the next 8 or 10 minutes. And I waited because I was waiting for the pause. And when I heard the pause, hey, stop. Let's rewind this all the way back nine minutes ago when you made this statement. That was passive-aggressive. Now, why did you do that? The other person in the room said, I knew when that was said, you were going to catch that. And I said, now here, here's the thing. I'm not coming at you with anger. I'm not mad that you said that. But what I'm trying to help you understand is the reason why you took a passive-aggressive stab at me is because you didn't feel powerful enough to own what you really believe and say that to me. And so what I told the person, not mad, I just said, I take away the need right now for you to feel powerful. You can tell me anything you want, and I'm not going to get mad. And so I, I believe our conversation went a lot better, and I don't recall any more passive-aggressive statements because I took the pressure off of them and to need to feel powerful in, in order to be honest in their heart. I want honesty. You don't have to be powerful around me. Just, just tell me what's in your heart. And so what you'll see in three here is some good tips on really understanding different people. And I would really encourage you to look at the passive aggressives because those are oftentimes the most challenging to deal with. And the one that I would really encourage you to talk about are the ones who are ultra agreeable and they just agree with everything. And you know you couldn't possibly agree with everything. I agree. I knew that you would. All right, so we got, it's 8.03, and I'll take about maybe a couple questions if you guys have any. All right, all the way in the back first. So obviously we have the protocol for, you know, brother and sister, uh, Matthew 18. What about someone that doesn't share the same values, whether in business or family? It, is this the same protocol? How do we handle that? Well, somebody asked that in class today, didn't they? All right, so here's the deal. I can't, so I can't use protocol as the basis to control. So again, the idea is, on my end, I can always follow that protocol. On their end, they don't necessarily have a requirement to do that if they're not a believer. And I'm not saying that one style of talking to people is uh, the right one. There are, uh, listen, when I go do these types of things, I understand who the person is. And I try to, within their temperament, talk to them in a way that they can receive it and not, you know, so if I'm, the, if I'm the commanding type and I just run in there and lay the hammer of truth down, that only works with people who aren't really emotional, right? 
I, that's a lose. You're going to lose in that situation every time, right? My goal is to regain my brother, so I may employ different, a lot of different techniques, but my, I'm, I usually, what guides me in my relationships most often is um, I am looking to be reconciled to the person. I'm going to work to that end. I'm going to work really hard for that to happen. But sometimes that's, and I'm willing to lose in a lot of ways and still love and take the loss in order to regain the person. I, I will do that. Love will cause you to be willing to lose and not feel like you've lost. Because what you gain in the relationship should be more important to you than what you think you're losing in being right. Does that answer that question? So love works every single time when I'm the one loving. But I don't love because I think I know what the outcome is. I love because God's love, he loved me, and I should love. Right? Does that answer? All right, who else over here? Yes, ma'am. I have always had this question. Okay. Um, the part about tell it to the church, what does that look like? I mean, like, do I grab the microphone from Brandon and say I got to... Tell the church something. I feel like that's good. You know, people who pay their tithes, they get a right to just grab the mic whenever they want. Like, it's a good thing. Oh, wait. Wait a minute. I get a microphone and just start talking crazy. What's up with that? So here's the thing. There is always a protocol that we need to follow. And anything at the church level always involves leaders. Recognize that, that God establishes elders for this very thing. Now, what we did is we took a look at one scripture, but we didn't take a look at probably three or four others that talk about settling disputes in the kingdom, that talk about all these different things. And all of these types of situations are the purview or the domain of an eldership that's functioning under the, 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 the control of the Holy Spirit. So what I would encourage, and Brandon and these guys can speak to that because obviously I, I don't get the right to just come in here and start making up rules. But what I would say personally, here's how I would handle it. I would start at the one-on-one -on -one level, and if that doesn't work, I would go to a leader every single time. Because really, that's, that's essentially what they're here for, and leaders should be safe people, and they should be mature people that can step in, and we're all working from the same work of everything that's happening in this meeting is to reconcile. It's not, it's not for you to, to, to necessarily feel bad. It's to what do we do to reconcile this situation and be reconciled to one another. And when we're both trying to walk in love, that will always be the goal. So step number one, go to the person. If there's any threat of safety, all the disclaimers, right, then, then, then jump to step two and go to the leader, right? But what I'm saying is what I would do more nine times out of ten is I would go to a leader in the church first or someone that I do deeply trust and that wouldn't be a threat necessarily to the other side of the equation, right? Is that, is that good advice, Brandon? Barry, we okay with that? All right, Barry likes it. Yes, sir. Who else? <laughs> Anybody else? We good? Yes, ma'am. What if we're dealing with somebody that's not a believer anymore? Okay. Anymore? And they're tied up into uh, like a drug addiction. Okay. And they sin against you. You've been real close for them for like 25 years. Okay. And you can't reason with them. Okay. Is it okay just to forgive them, let it go, and stay away? Okay. I'm going to say that number five on avoidance is an appropriate strategy for resolving conflict in some situations. That's why avoiding is on the list. 
What I am going to try to say is that the larger sin that they've committed against me, in my view, isn't near as important as the sin that they're committing against themselves by self-destructing. And so again, I can't control, and in certain types of situations, when it's a family member, if I'm married to that person, I probably am going to take control out of their hands. I'm probably, going to, I'm probably going to talk to some people that know what they're doing, and we're going to stage an intervention, and I'm not going to allow you to terrorize the rest of my family. But what if this is not a family member? Okay. Just somebody, a friend that you've right. been close to for a long time. I would say that Matthew 18 specifically deals with believers and their relationships. And in as much as it depends upon me, Romans says, I should live with peace with all men. The first goal in any situation is reconciliation and restoration. If that is not possible, then I jump to the next level of as much as it depends on me, I'm going to live at peace with you. Not because that's what I want, but that's what you're dictating by your behavior. Is that good, Barry? Okay. What else? I got I to gotta make sure we're running this by the resident theologian over here. <laughs> I know, right? We good? Okay, oh. okay so uh, here's the situation where I'll say Sam told me that Isaac talked to David and Isaac's <laughs> offended at me about something I did. So Sam's involved, Raven Hill's involved, and Isaac's offended and he talked to them. And then, then Sam told me, and so walk me through that. Right. So walk me through, because I, you know, I hear that a lot. So so and so told me that so and so is upset with me, and it's a, it's a three four person train. You know what? I feel like there's one in every crowd. You guys know that? No. <laughs> I think that's an excellent question because honestly, it's those, those types of scenarios that are so prevalent in churches and in community that the way to deal with that, in my opinion, once it starts to involve other people, I actually would call for a conflict resolution meeting with all those people. Yeah. And the reason why I would do that is where we lose it and miss it most often, again, I really want to drill this home because when my heart really is postured in love, I don't want you to get what you have coming to you. That, that's a real thing. And what I do want is, it, what, I want, what, I, what I want to see is, what I don't want to see is the enemy to get into a group of people and start spreading dissension in a body that starts polarizing a body and suddenly people feel like they have to take sides and they were never involved in it because they feel like if they don't take a side, that leader that they really love that's poured into their life, they're being disloyal to them. And the body should never have to be put into that kind of position. And so the best way to handle um, gossip groups or power bases is to bring the whole power base in. But I would say ultimately that if that's the case, you're already defaulting to leadership to do that. The moment you start dealing with a group of people, you should bring elders and get them involved right away. Because the goal, again, is not for you to go off on them. The goal is to be reconciled and to dethrone the enemy from the situation. Is that a good answer, Brandon? All right, who do we need to go talk to?
I was gonna give out. I was gonna oh. give out Dave Vespa's phone number. Oh, Rob, Bob, Bob. Eight six three seven. All right, anybody else? We good? Oh, we got one more. All right, back here in the back, Allison. I already asked your forgiveness. Why are you bothering me? It's a marital question. Oh, I'm not gonna one up Brandon on that one. But I've had situations like this happen before in life, where you find out from. Well, maybe I have to make it a scenario. So let's say that. Um, let's say Levi says something to Barry and it's like super hurtful about me and it really like he was just kind of venting in the moment says something and then Barry betrays Levi's confidence and tells me and then what do I do with that information okay you know like because you don't want to like throw Barry under the bus does that yeah. make sense? I feel like this has happened before in life. Everybody knows this has happened to people, but what do you do? Okay, this gets into a couple other things, and I'm going I'm to answer that story by a quick story. I told this to the students today. There's a situation where I'm living in a home with a, with, a, with a friend of mine. He temporarily had to leave his wife because he had some really powerful sexual addictions, and she kicked him out of the house. He comes back into the house. I'm, I'm back in. My wife and I are temporarily staying there because we just got back from Seattle. Anyway, he starts confiding in me. And he says, Derek, I've really got a problem. Please don't tell anybody. Can you keep this in your confidence? And can you help me? And I said, absolutely. My heart went out to him. Well, what I noticed is he started this pattern where every time he'd fall, he'd come and absolve his conscience with me and feel like he had done his due diligence and I had made an oath to keep that in confidence. So understand that because I made an oath, I am now an accessory to his sin. So, so I, I recognize it probably took me two or three days and I recognized my mistakes and that is why our yeses should be yeses and our noes should be noes. And we shouldn't be, allow ourselves to be drawn into oaths that make you a partner to sin. You hear me? And so in that situation, I prayed about it. And, and, and uh, I went to the authority in the house who made a stipulation that if that brother came in to live in the house, he could not engage in any kind of illicit activity like that. And so I went to him, um, told him what had happened. I went to him weeping, telling him that in, in saying this to the head of the house there, that I was betraying a confidence in order to do that. And it broke my heart that I had to do it, but because I had made an oath that God didn't approve of. I, I can just tell you, and, I was, and he's not the wrong person. I was the wrong person to make the oath, right? So to answer to your question is, keep this in confidence. I'm going to tell you right now, the moment someone says that to me, I will usually generally say, nope, I reserve the right, if I deem it necessary, to go tell the other person. And if you're getting ready to talk to me about somebody else, don't. And I think if we could learn, this is really that kind of behavior is a practical application of love covering because you're covering the other person that's getting ready to be gossiped about. Right? So what if everybody in this room decided to stop allowing our tongues to be set on fire by hell Monday through Saturday, and then suddenly we sanctified on Sunday in time enough for Allison and the worship team? What if we decided that 
we no longer are going to speak and allow the accuser of the brethren to work through our mouths? And what if instead we refuse to know it because being in the know is really allowing that person to come tell you the secret? You know what that really is? You ready? That's you living out of the tree of knowledge. And, and Jesus unplugged you from that and put you back into the tree of life. You don't want to live in knowledge. You don't want to live knowing things about people just so that you need to feel powerful. So what if we stopped it right now and tonight and we don't allow any of that to ever happen here again? I wonder if God would send revival to that. Anybody else? Did that answer your question? So I know now, like, for example, Levi has an issue with me, and I'm like, okay. do I? Two things. Okay. We don't ever get the pass. If you know your brother has ought against you, what? Go to them. Yeah. I don't get a pass at any place because if, my, if I know my brother sinned against me and has ought against me, I need to go to them. If I know that I've sinned against you and I have ought against you, I need to go to you. So somebody's going to somebody, right? And, and there's really not, again, except, go to them, except, well, there really isn't except, except common sense. Like if they're going to put you in physical danger because you're afraid they're going to hurt you, that's probably not a good idea. Yeah, like Will, are you saying Will hurt you, bro? Oh, oh yeah, bring Will. You got a business card, bro? Conflict resolution technician. All right, so we'll end it here. One more? All right. It's, a, it's in part of hers. Okay. So now Barry is the one that leaked out She's the information, right? So, so, Barry. So now, no, but this is real important. Okay. So now she has to go to, to I think his name was Levi, right? Okay, so, and, and resolve the conflict that is that now that she knows that he has ought against her. <clears throat> but my question is, how are we going to protect Barry? And Barry was the person who did what? Barry's the guy that, that leaked the information to her. Okay, so here's the thing about that. Who was it that said, if I don't tell a lie, I don't have to keep worrying about covering up the lie? So, so the better way is when I step into agreement with something that's sinful and I become a participant of that, then I have to start worrying about the, 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 the massive web that we're weaving because we're deceiving, right? And so how do we protect Barry? I, I would say this, that the moment that, that, first of all, you shouldn't allow yourself to become, well, I'm going to tell you something about somebody, but I, don't want, I, don't want, I want you to promise you're not going to say anything. Stop right there. Stop right there and think about what's getting ready to happen here. Because you being willing to entertain it, and we've all done this. I've done it. I'm not the perfect guy here. I mean, I've messed up in this area a lot. But I can tell you, the moment that I'm willing to en un entertain it, whoever the person is that's getting ready to be talked about, I'm essentially uncovering them. So think about that. So how do we handle that? The idea is we should come clean and give people a disclaimer. Before you do that, I reserve the right that if you're getting ready to tell me something really sinful, I actually will go say something. So you probably don't. So, so it's better that you not know then you participate and become an accomplice in someone else's sin. How many times have we done that? 
and not even really paid attention to what we're doing. Does that help? Uh-huh, yes. And then also, then, then that would cause Barry to have to go back to... Yeah. Right? Is that yeah. Right? What, I would, what I honestly would do, all right, when I get to the bottom of the person, if I know somebody's gossiping about me, probably what I would do, hey, brother, I want to be restored to you. I, I don't know why you're doing that, but now I need to find out who have you told that to because we need to make sure they're not offended in their heart and we need, I need to go be restored back to all these people. And really, you need to repent for doing that. I can't make you do that, but if you really love me, you would because you don't want to hurt me, right? And so in the process of that, again, this is how the enemy works. The enemy works when we entertain that kind of gossip and we start to propagate it and we don't realize that the same lips we use to praise God can also manipulate, be manipulated by hell and we are coming into agreement with the devil when we do that. Christians don't like to hear that, but understand that you are betraying God when you do that. Can I say that any more seriously? When we allow the enemy to speak through our mouth, we are cooperating with an assignment of hell against someone else. We have to stop that. Let that not be found among us. Is that good? All right, so Father, several things tonight. We listen for you in the whisper. Lord, we're, we're inclining. We're saying, come and make this place a Bethany where you bring heart of the Father into a oneness that we've never encountered here yet. That even on Sunday morning, that such a manifestation of the glory of God would begin to move throughout this building. That the weighty glory of God would begin to move in the hearts of your people. And that you would create in this place of Bethany where extravagant worship that would honor you and go forth you, that, that the fragrance of what's released from those alabaster boxes, that we would all walk away with that same fragrance all over us, having been in the presence of God, that you would be so anointed in this season with, um, with heart of the Father, that you would draw us into simplicity where we incline our ear upon your chest and we hear the whisper in your voice. Father, secondly, I pray tonight that you would release such a revelation and a manifestation of the love of God. I believe this is a word of the Lord to this body, that you call us into love, that you call us into covering, that you call us to stop the enemy at whatever level he's trying to use and propagate demonic speech through yielded mouths and hearts that are full of offense. Lord, this goes on in every church all over the place. May it be stopped in its tracks here to whatever degree that may operate. May you kill the heart in us that wants to gossip and uncover people in our hearts and through our mouth. Lord, may you raise up a people who by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, may you raise up within us a heart of restoration that isn't afraid to go face to face with one another so that we might be reconciled in every area of our lives. And Lord, I just pray this, that Lord, tonight in every single person's life in this room where there are unreconcilable conflicts, Lord, I decree right now in the name of Jesus that you would begin to manifest your presence in all of these relationships where people in this room tonight are estranged from mothers and fathers. We believe that you are turning the hearts of the fathers back to sons and daughters and the hearts of mothers back to sons and daughters. And we believe that you are restoring relationships right now.
We believe that all across this room where husbands and wives are growing apart, that you would stop the enemy and release a revival of love in their lives right now where marriages are in trouble in this room, that you would begin to release forgiveness and release restoration and reconciliation. And those places, Lord, we, 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 we pray that you would release the power of God over situations in this room and in this body where people have worked diligently to try to reconcile, but it seems unreconcilable. May the bond of peace be released in every situation, and may you get the glory because people are willing to come back into love and reconcile. May you be found in a body at heart of the Father and in every other church represented by people that might be listening to this on SoundCloud or somewhere else. May in these places you find a Bethany, a place where people no longer refuse to cooperate with the enemy, but instead choose to, as Colossians 3 says, put on love. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.